Ape Men, Adam, and the Gospel. How many of you have ever seen that picture before? Okay. The evolutionists want us to believe that we evolved from some ape-like creature over millions of years. And they're doing a good job of convincing people. Last summer, Gallup Poll, or the previous year, did a survey of Americans' uh, views on human origins, and they found that 38% hold to the biblical view, down from 47% in the past. Another 38% hold to theistic evolution, which says that we did evolve from apes, but God was mysteriously guiding the process. And then 19% hold to the atheist view, up from 9% in the past. And uh, being a math major, I did the simple math and discovered that 57% of Americans believe that we evolved from an ape-like creature. Well, did we? Well, I want to begin with a video clip from a film that has been shown at the Natural History Museum in London for a number of years, several times a day. And it features Sir David Attenborough, the famous voice of science for the BBC. And it's entitled, Who Do You Think You Really Are? So, watch and listen. I'm going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover who you really are and where you came from. But you're not just going to sit there listening to me. You're going to be part of the experience. And you'll be able to examine some of the evidence for evolution along the way. If you have a look at your screens now, you can rotate the modern human skull. And you'll see the domed forehead, the small face, the small front teeth, and on the lower jaw, a chin. If you keep looking through your screen, you will see Australopithecus afarensis, an extinct hominid who lived about three million years ago. Deep sea anglers live at a depth in the ocean below a thousand meters where there's no light, so they're living in total darkness. It was our fishy ancestors that first developed some of our most fundamental features, our skeleton, jaws, and four limbs. Hold up your screen and look through it one last time. You'll see the tree that represents all of life, past and present. We started this film with a question. Who do you think you are? And we can end it with an answer. You are, undoubtedly, like every other living thing on Earth, a member of one single family of life descended from a common ancestor living thousands of millions of years ago. So there you have it. Your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is a little tiny bacterium that popped into existence by chance in the primordial oceans three and a half billion years ago. That's scientific fact, according to the National Natural History Museum in London. And in that, in that video, you saw the evolution tree of life produced by those blue laser beams. And the evolutionists believe that all the plants, animals, and people are descended from a common ancestor. In contrast to the evolution tree, we have the creation forest of life. God created different kinds of creatures with the genetic information in their DNA at the very beginning to produce lots of variety within their kind, but not to change into a different kind. One of the branches on the evolutionary tree is the branch of hominid evolution. And the evolutionists believe that the orangutan, chimp, gorilla, and modern man, as well as Australopithecine, Homo erectus, Homo ergoster, Neanderthals, Cro-Magnon, they're all related to a common ancestor, an ape-like creature. The contrast, the creation force of life, creationists think that perhaps an orangutan is one kind of ape, chimps and gorillas may be related to a common ancestor, Australopithecines might be a, a separate kind, but mankind would include Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, Homo erectus, Homo ergoster, and all of us, true humans. So, two different ways of looking at the origin and history of, of humanity. The evolution tree, the creation forest. And as we have been emphasizing, everybody has the same evidence. All the scientists, evolutionists or creationists, they have the same fossils, 
They have the same DNA. They have the same living creatures to study. But they have two different ways of looking at the evidence and interpreting the evidence and trying to reconstruct the unobserved past. Evolutionists are using a naturalistic worldview that they can explain the origin of man by time and chance and the laws of nature. Creationists are following the eyewitness testimony of the Creator as they interpret the evidence. So we want to see which view fits the facts. And I want to begin by looking at what the evolutionists have to say, and then we'll look at what the Scriptures have to say. One of the key creatures on the evolutionary tree leading to man is Australopithecus. Australo meaning southern, Pithecus meaning ape. And much of the evidence for Australopithecus has been found in East Africa, particularly Kenya, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. And the most famous Australopithecine is Lucy. How many of you have ever heard of Lucy? Yeah, see, she's more famous than Eve today. Well, Donald Johansson was a Ph.D. student. He found Lucy with his team in 1974. Um, They found about 25% of the skeleton, but it wasn't nicely laid out like this. And then because of the symmetry of the body, they could reconstruct about 70% of the skeleton. Well, since then, uh, other evolutionists have found other Australopithecine fossils. They now have uh, feet bones and hand bones. And this is the way the Natural History Museum pictures her in London. And I want you to notice that she has human hands, human feet, upright posture, just like you and I stand, but an ape-like head. But there are even evolutionists who would say that that is a serious misrepresentation of the fossil evidence and that Lucy and her kind were knuckle walkers similar to a pygmy chimp or bonobo or gorilla. And so that's the way we've pictured her in our creation museum as our artists worked under the guidance of Dr. David Menton for 34 years, professor of human anatomy, who has carefully studied the fossil evidence. Well, that's Lucy now in London, but now I want to show you Lucy in St. Louis because the St. Louis Zoo had a Lucy exhibit for many years, and that's Lucy in St. Louis. Now, she's got more hair, but she still has human hands, human feet, and upright posture, and look at that face. Whoops. I went too far. Do you see the whites of the eyes? Those are human eyes, but they're not preserved. The eyes are not preserved in the fossil record. So that's pure artistic imagination. You see, apes don't have eyes like that. Their eyes are almost completely black or brown. They have to really turn to the side for you to see any white. That's an imaginary creature created by an evolutionary artist. And just by putting human eyes in, it makes the creature look more human. Well, that's Lucy in London and Lucy in St. Louis. But the Chicago Field Museum also has a Lucy exhibit, and that's Lucy in Chicago. Now, she's a little more robust. She has heavier eyebrow ridges, but she still has human hands, human feet, and upright posture. And then that's Lucy in a BBC television program. Now, she has that unusual hairline, but that's because the BBC is in London and the Natural History Museum is in London, so they've got to make those match. But... Those faces are all different. And then that's Lucy in Smithsonian Magazine and Lucy in Science Magazine. So it's any way the artist wants to draw her. Richard Leakey is the director of the Kenyan National Museums, very famous evolutionist, anthropologist. And in 1981, he wrote a book, making, The Making of Mankind, in which he said, We can now say that Australopithecines definitely walked upright. So is there any doubt in his mind about this? No, they definitely walked upright. Well, that was 1981. But in 1982, he was speaking at the Royal Institution, a very famous science institute in London. And there was a reporter from the New Scientist magazine who went to the lecture. Now, the New Scientist is a weekly science magazine published in Great Britain, and it is evolutionist in orientation. And the reporter tells us, Leakey points out that paleontologists do not know whether Australopithecus walked upright. Nobody has yet found an associated skeleton with a skull. Oh, well, now that's interesting. I wonder how many people who were at this lecture, uh, uh, who read his book, were at the lecture to hear that. 
The article goes on to quote Leakey, I am staggered to believe that as little as a year ago I made the statements that I made. So said Richard Leakey before the elegant audience of a Royal Institution evening discourse last Friday. He had come to reveal the conventional wisdom which he had so recently espoused in his BBC television series, The Making of Mankind, was probably wrong in a number of crucial areas. Now, you see, the BBC realized not enough people have read or will read that book. So we've got to do a documentary so more people will know what's in that book. But now, Leakey says, at this prestigious lecture, he was probably wrong in a number of crucial areas. Not little, tiny, insignificant points. Crucial areas. I wonder how many people who saw the TV documentary or read the book were at the lecture to hear that. In particular, he now sees man's oldest ancestor as being considerably younger than the 15 to 20 million years he plumped for on television. How many TV viewers ever heard that? Leakey says that the basis on which paleontologists classify fossil apes in humans is misleading, and he would like to see an entirely fresh episode of classifying. Well, that was 1982. In 1986, there was an article in Discover magazine, uh, leading uh, an American science magazine, summarizing all the evidence for australopithecines up to that point, and it began... An extraordinary 2.5 million-year-old skull found in Kenya has overturned all previous notions of the course of early hominid evolution. We no longer know who gave rise to whom, perhaps not even how or when we came into being. So they found this skull, and it's really thrown a wrench in the system. So here's a chart from Donald Johansson and Timothy White, another leading uh, evolutionist, And you can see that, this is before the discovery, you can see that they have some question marks about how they got to Lucy. But then they're very confident that some of Lucy's descendants went off into extinction. The others eventually evolved into man. And they've got that all figured out, except they do have a question about Neanderthals. And then they found that skull. And now they don't know who gave rise to whom, when, or how we came into being. Well, that article ends this way. The bottom line of all this is that a great deal of work needs to be done. It's a new era in paleoanthropology. The things we thought we understood reasonably well, we don't. No better argument can be made to support the time, trouble, and cost of field work than this new skull. Like an earthquake, the new skull has reduced our nicely organized constructs to a rubble of awkward, sharp-edged new hypotheses. That's a scientific word for guess. It's a sure sign of scientific progress. Well, it is progress. It's progress when you find out that what you thought was true is wrong. That is progress. But they're not getting any closer to the truth. They're getting more confused, as I'm going to show you. Well, that was 1986. But in 1994, Nova Television had a series on human origins. And uh, I want to show you a clip from that first program. It features Dr. Owen Lovejoy. He's another prominent American anthropologist, teaches at Kent State University in Ohio. And I want you to watch and listen to what Dr. Lovejoy is doing to a plaster cast of Lucy's hip bones. And the voice narrating in the background is Donald Johansson, who found Lucy. So watch and listen. We need to back that up. Have we got sound? Why isn't that playing? Have any idea why we're not getting any sound? Uh, I'm getting sound out of my computer. Any idea? Well, we've got another way we can do this. Let me see if I can uh, back that up. Well, no, you can't do that. What's that? Well, yeah, but if I... 
I can't, the sound in the picture coming through. Well, let me tell you what they do. It's much better watching the video. Yeah, but hear it. It's much better to hear it. Let me uh, play it. Okay. He starts out by saying that they found the, the hip bone and it was really, really perfectly fitted together. At the time that Lucy died, it got smashed together after she died. And it made it look like a chimpanzee uh, hip bone. But all was not lost. And so he decided to grind the hip bone. Actually, he didn't grind the bone. He ground, ground a plaster cast of the bone to make it what he thought it was when she was alive. And uh, so when he fit the pieces together... It fit together just like perfect, like a jigsaw puzzle. That's exactly the words they say. Well, that's perfect. And as a result, it no longer looks like an ape, but a lot like our human. Well, of course it does. They crowned it to look that way. Now, listen. If a creationist did that to the fossil evidence, or the plaster cast of the fossil evidence... He'd be crucified. An evolutionist does it. That's good science. No, it's a manipulation of the evidence to fit a preconceived idea. Remember that first video I showed you? This creature came walking onto the screen and stood straight up. And Sir David Attenborough said, Australopithecus afarensis. That's Lucy. No, that's not Lucy. That's Lucy or something very similar. She's not our relative. What about Neanderthal man? Well, the first Neanderthals were discovered in 1856 in the Neander Valley in Germany. This is the way they pictured him. He was rather robust, stooped in the shoulders, ape-like in the head, and not wearing very many clothes. Of course, the clothes are not preserved in the fossil record, so that's pure imagination. But they've since found a, a Neanderthal skeletons in various places in Europe, in the Middle East, and elsewhere. And there are now even evolutionists who would say that if you dressed up Neanderthal in a coat and tie and put him in the Bakersfield shopping mall, nobody would take a second look. In fact, Time magazine had an article back in 1994 called The Changing Faces of Neanderthal. And they showed how Neanderthals have been represented over the years. So here you have Harper's Weekly, 1873. He needs a haircut. But otherwise, he could be an American Olympic athlete. Then in 1909, he's ape-like in the head, but human otherwise, and naked. In 1953, he's behaving like some humans, but he's ape-like in the head. In 1984, he needs a shave and a haircut, taught not to eat live frogs or mice, whatever he's got in his hand, but he's human. In 1988, he's showing us that he needs to go to the dentist, but he's human. But then CNN has him more ape-like in 2006. He's got a lot more hair in 2007, and he's perfectly human in 2008 in Science Daily. The Neanderthal Museum for many years had an exhibit where they featured the 1983 version and the 1909 version, and one evolutionist commented on this. From his bestial 19th century persona to just another guy in the suit, Neanderthals have been pigeonholed according to the times. Well, recently, the Neanderthal Museum updated their exhibits, like all good museums do. And uh, this is the, what the Neanderthals look like now. And the guy on the left has been out in the sun a little too long. And he has a pretty big nose. But I've been doing scientific observations the whole weekend. And I've noticed some of you have big noses. And I've been wondering, you know, where you are on the evolutionary tree. Oh, that's ridiculous. Those are humans. There could be people that look like that. Yes, but the Neanderthals were primitive. They had primitive stone tools, primitive stone culture. That proves they weren't fully human. No, it doesn't. When George Washington was president of the United States, living in the presidential palace in Philadelphia with Persian rugs on the floor, fine china and cutlery, and a toilet in the house, 
living in the very same country at the very same time were Native American Indians living in teepees with no Persian rugs on the floor, no fine china, and no toilet in the teepee. And they were just as human as George Washington. And we have people today that in our Western arrogance we call primitive. People like the Aborigines of Australia. They're different from us. They have a different lifestyle. But they're Aborigine children who go off to Australian universities. And if you drop me by helicopter in the forest where they live with just the clothes on my body, even though I have a Ph.D., I'd probably be dead in three days. I'd eat some poisonous plant. I wouldn't know how to make a boomerang or a spear. And even if I did, I wouldn't know how to catch anything. They're different from us, but they're not subhuman. Oh, but the Neanderthals lived in caves. That proves that they weren't fully human. No, it doesn't. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947 in, the, in caves on the northwest <clears throat> side of the Dead Sea in Israel. Copies of the Hebrew Old Testament and other Jewish writings from a group of Jews who lived out there in the wilderness just before and after the time of Christ. And did you know that the Bible speaks of cavemen? There are no ape men in the Bible, but there are cavemen. Hebrews 11 says, Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Sarah, Jacob, Lazarus, and Jesus were buried in a cave, just like Neanderthals buried their dead in caves. And Lot, Elijah, and David lived in a cave for a while. Why did they live in the cave? Because the necessities of life required it. God said, Lot, get out of Sodom. He went up into a mountain, into a cave. Elijah was running from King Ahab. David was on the assassin's list of King Saul. And if you're running for your life, a cave is a really good place to hide. And we have cavemen today. Very famous one died just a few years ago. His name was Osama bin Laden. And why was he living in the caves of the mountains of Afghanistan, we're told? Because the necessity of life required it. Very smart man. The archaeological evidence that Neanderthals were 100% human is overwhelming. They made sophisticated spears, needles, and stone tools. They used makeup and made seashell jewelry. They hunted dolphins and seals. They used fire to cook food, and they figured out how to make glue. They built homes from animal skins, made uh, musical instruments from bear femurs, they cared for their sick, evidence that they did surgery and ceremonially buried their dead. They made and sailed boats, and they possessed the hyoid bone in the voice box, which scientists say is almost identical to that of modern humans. They had the speech-associated gene FOXP2, and they interbred or married and had kids with modern humans. So the Neanderthals are our relatives, and based on where their bones have been found, we conclude they are people who migrated from the Tower of Babel after Noah's flood. Well, what about some other missing links? Piltdown Man was announced in 1912, and the Illustrated London News had a picture of what he looked like based on the evidence, which was a piece of jaw, two molar teeth, and a canine tooth, and a piece of skull. And the Geological Society of London made the confident announcement that he is a half a million to a million years old, and the bones leave no possible doubt but that they represent a man who must be regarded as affording us a link with our remote ancestors, the apes. No possible doubt. Well, the bones went into the Natural History Museum. There were other artistic representations in the ensuing years, this one more ape-like. There were scientists who said, we'd like to look at those bones. And the museum said, we'd be happy to show you plaster casts of the bones. They didn't let anybody look at the bones for 40 years. Finally, in 1953, they let some scientists look at the bones. They were actually evolutionists. And what they discovered was a deliberate hoax. And the evidence pointed to some of the leading scientists in Britain at, and at the British Museum involved in that hoax. In 1922, the Nebraska man was announced. And the Illustrated London News had a picture of what he and his wife were doing when they lost the only piece of evidence that was found. It was a single tooth. And from that tooth, they reconstructed the whole scene. Well, they kept digging there, and by 1927, they had found more evidence. 
and in a technical article using a technical scientific name, not Nebraska man, not in a newspaper for the public, they quietly announced, oops, we made a mistake. That wasn't an ape man. That was an extinct species of pig. So that's the real Nebraska man. And I like to say this is a case where a pig made a monkey out of a man. Chris Stringer is a research leader in human origins at the Natural History Museum in London. He's a world expert. In a review of a book in 1993 on human origins, he said this, The study of human origins seems to be a field in which each discovery raises the debate to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. True to the traditions of the field, the arguments swirl around the questions of the correct classification of the fossils and of the presumed relationships between the species of humans and prehumans. So they're just getting to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. Well, in 2000, this article appeared in National Geographic. I couldn't believe it was in the magazine. I'm going to show you everything on this one-page article. It had a picture of these six bones and a piece of jaw. And they said... It's hard to find a re, uh, someone who can draw a realistic-looking early hominid. That's why the Geographics Art Department conducted a search for new talent. Four artists were picked to receive casts of two-million-year-old female Homo habilis fossils. From these bits of evidence, they were to sketch in skeletal and fleshed-out form the hominid to whom the bones belong. So here's the assignment. We want you to draw a complete skeleton based on this evidence... And then we want you to draw a picture of what the creature looked like when it had muscles and skin and hair and everything. The article goes on. Each artist had two weeks with the bones before they were sent to the next person. So that's all you need to do this is two weeks. Research was completely up to the individual. That's why their work looks so different. There's no one way to draw her. That's significant. They conclude... Paleoanthropologists reviewed the results. Intrigued with all four entries, the art department has invited artists to finish, uh, to paint finished versions based on input from the consultants. Well, I just have a question: How will that help? Because the paleoanthropologists don't have any more evidence than the artists, and they're not as good at art. Would you be interested to see what they drew? Well, even if you're not, I'm going to show you because this is very educational. Let's start with the head. All they have from the head is a piece of jaw. And remember, there's no one way to draw her. So let's see what they drew. Ape-like head, more human-like. Ape-like head, ape-like head. But they're all different. Now we're going to look at the rest of the body. And before we do, I'm going to remind you of two facts. The first fact is that they only had six bones. But notice those bones. They're partial bones. They're not complete bones. So the artists are going to have to guess, well, how long was the bone when it was a complete bone? But they've only got six bones. There are 207 bones in the human body. So that's not much to work with. The second fact you need to remember is that humans have an arm-to-leg ratio of three-quarters to one. So when we stand up straight, our hands come to the middle of our thighs. But apes have much longer arms. If they could stand up straight, their hands would come to their knees or even farther. They all had the same six bones. There's no one way to draw her. So let's see what they drew. Human-length arms, getting down to ape-length arms. Human-length arms with curved hands to give it the tree-dwelling look. And this one's in a tree, and those arms are looking awful long. Folks, this is not science. This is art and imagination. Well, in 2001, Daniel Lieberman, who's a prominent American paleoanthropologist, had an article in Nature, a leading technical journal. And he said, until a few years ago, the evolutionary history of our species was thought to be reasonably straightforward. Well, I would debate that just on the basis of the evidence that I've presented already. But he goes on. Lately, confusion has been sown in the human evolutionary tree. The confusion now looks set to increase still further. They're getting more confused as time goes on. 
And look at his chart. Down the left side, you've got the six million years. And then you've got those big, bold bars of red, green, blue, black. That's the fossil evidence. And then you've got those black lines with question marks on them. That's not the fossil evidence. That's an evolutionary imagination of relationships. So let's get rid of that so that we can see the fossil evidence. And that looks like different kinds of creatures have always been different kinds of creatures. Well, then there was an article that appeared in 2006. Lucy's baby, an extraordinary new fossil. And they showed us the evidence. That's the stuff in orange. White is imagination. And they told us what they found. Shoulder blades and neck vertebrae like a gorilla. Inner ear canals like African apes. Long curved finger like a tree-dwelling ape. But now notice the picture. The only evidence they have from the arms is that one finger and a little bit of the upper arm bone. The rest is imagination. But they've drawn the arm the length of a human arm. It had a voice box like a chimpanzee's and a cranial capacity like a chimpanzee. So according to their statements, it's an ape. But they drew it to make it look like that creature, especially the ankles, it was standing upright just like you and I. Well, I didn't give you the whole title of the article. It didn't say Lucy's baby, an extraordinary new fossil. It said an extraordinary new human fossil. But all the evidence is ape. So they should have said ape fossil. But if they'd said that, there'd be no reason to publish the article. Because who cares about an ape fossil? So what is this? It's more ape-man deception in one of our leading science magazines. Well, we could go on, but we can summarize and say that there's several ways you can make an ape-man. You can take a few human bones, add imagination, and make an ape-man. Or you can take a few ape bones. Or you don't even need an ape bone. You can use a pig tooth if you want. Add imagination, make an ape-man. Or you can take a few human bones and a few ape bones, add imagination, and make an ape-man. And if all those methods fail, you can always get an electric grinder or a file and change the shape of the bones, add imagination, and make an ape-man. We have two chapters in the book, Searching for Adam, by two uh, leading creationist researchers on this question. Dr. Menton critiques uh, a series of exhibits that traveled around America from the Smithsonian um, to American libraries to brainwash the public with evolution. He critiques every one of those creatures in that exhibit. And then Dr. Uh, or, uh, uh, Marvin Lubinow does a whole chapter on Neanderthals. Wonderful, wonderful chapters. So Neanderthal was fully human. Piltdown man was a hoax. Nebraska man was a pig. Australopithecines are apes. So was Lucy's baby. We could talk about Peking man, Java man, Ida, Hobbit man, one of the newest ones, Homo naledi. They're either fully ape, fully human, or imaginary creatures. There really is no evidence that man evolved. Rather, imagination and art are the keys, and over time, the evolutionists are getting more confused. Well, what about the DNA evidence? Well, in April of this year, National Geographic had an article where they said, the DNA profiles of these two are nearly 99% the same. And the evolutionists have been saying this over and over for the last few years. But it's a lie. Because they didn't compare the complete human genome and the complete chimp genome. And they used the human genome as a as a uh, scaffolding for making the comparison. It was a very biased uh, comparison. Uh, Jeffrey Tompkins is a geneticist at the Institute for Creation Research. He's done a more thorough analysis. And in a technical article on our website, he concludes that the DNA similarity is about 85% or less. And Jeffrey Tompkins and our uh, Answers in Genesis uh, biologist Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson, who has a Ph.D. from Harvard, wrote the chapter in Searching for Adam on the genetic evidence. The genetics confirms what the Bible says about human origins. Well, uh, in my few minutes remaining, what does uh, the Bible have to say? And the Bible is clear, crystal clear, that Adam and Eve were created supernaturally and were unique from all other creatures. 
And I want to just um, make one statement or, or read to you one statement by John Stott, a great Bible teacher in England, died a few years ago. I have a number of his books in my library, been very helpful to me. His, cha- his book on the cross of Christ is the best book I've ever read on the subject. But I think he was very mistaken on this issue, and we can learn from what he said. He said, It seems perfectly possible to reconcile the historicity of Adam with at least some theistic evolutionary theory. Many biblical Christians, in fact, do so, believing them to be not entirely incompatible. Well, the fact that many biblical Christians believe something doesn't mean it's correct. Christians can make mistakes. Really good Christian leaders and scholars can make mistakes. He goes on, To assert the historicity of an original pair who sinned through disobedience is one thing. And Dr. Stott did believe that the first two humans sinned through disobedience. But he goes on, It is quite another to deny all evolution and assert the separate and special creation of everything, including both subhuman creatures and Adam's body. But why is it another thing? The Bible clearly says God created distinct kinds of plants and animals in Genesis 1 to reproduce after their kind. And the Bible clearly says that the first two humans sinned through disobedience. He goes on, The suggestion, for it is no more than this, does not seem to me to be against Scripture and therefore impossible, that when God made man in his own image, what he did was to stamp his own likeness on one of the many hominids which appear to have been living at the time. Speaking hesitatingly as a non-scientist, Stott goes on to indicate that he leans toward the idea of pre-Adamite hominids who were anatomically indistinguishable from modern man, but who did not bear the image of God. I wish that Dr. Stott had paid as careful attention to Genesis as he did to the Gospels and New Testament books when he wrote his helpful uh, books on those subjects. Because if he had, he would have never made that suggestion. So let's look at the evidence that Adam and Eve were created supernaturally and were unique from all other creatures. In Genesis 1, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So both male and female, the only two genders, are made in the image of God. Humans are the only creatures made in the image of God. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, whether you're inside the womb or outside the womb, whether you're in perfect health or struggling with all kinds of health issues, Everyone is made in the image of God. In Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The ESV says living creature. The King James says living soul. Those are different translations of the same Hebrew words. And so we can diagram this sentence and compare it to what Dr. Stott and, sadly, a growing number of evangelical scholars are suggesting. The Bible says that God made man from the dust. He added the divine breath, and that became a living creature, living being, living soul. Those words, living creature, are a translation of two Hebrew words, nefesh chayah. Nefesh is the word translated as creature or soul or being, depending on context. Chaya is the adjective form of the verb to live. <clears throat> so notice what it says. God made man. He added the divine breath. That became a living creature. Those same two Hebrew words are used in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 9 to describe sea creatures, land animals, and birds. They are also living creatures. They're not made in the image of God, but the Bible says they're living creatures. Paul says... Exactly what Genesis says. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Contrast that to what Dr. Stott and other evangelical scholars are suggesting today. That God took a living creature which had evolved a body like he wanted. He breathed into that creature the breath of life and that became man. But that is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. In English, or Hebrew, or Spanish, or German, or Chinese, or Arabic. God did not take a pre-existing living creature and change it into man. The text cannot be more clear. And I have found that Christian 
leaders and scholars who are telling the church that it's okay to accept human evolution, most of them never pay attention to that verse. But that verse is critical. And theistic evolution is wrong. There's more evidence that it's wrong. In Genesis 3.19, after Adam sinned, God said, you're going to return to the dust because you came from the dust. And the Bible says we're all going to return to the dust someday. And we're not going to return to an ape-like creature. We're going directly to the dust. Well, God gave Adam, he, he, play, he created the garden, he placed Adam in the garden, and he gave him an assignment to name the animals. And in the process of naming the animals, which he didn't have to go out and find, the Bible says God brought the animals to him, he found there was no helper comparable to him. He realized there were no humans for him to relate to. And so God put him to sleep. And God took the rib, which he had taken from the man, and he made it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, in this case, Eve was made from a pre-existing living creature, Adam. But this is describing supernatural surgery. There's no way you can harmonize this verse with evolution. Genesis 3 says Eve was the mother of all the living, and 1 Corinthians says Adam was the first man. So the Bible's crystal clear. Adam and Eve were the first two humans, and everybody is descended from them. And the Bible tells us how long ago Adam lived. We have the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11. And these genealogies are unique. There are no other genealogies in the Bible or in ancient Near Eastern literature like these genealogies because these genealogies don't just name names. They give the ages of the patriarch when the next son was born. And then they give us the age of the man when he died. And so some Christians think there might be some missing names. I've studied the arguments. I don't think there are any missing names in those genealogies like there are missing names in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1. But even if there are missing names, there is no missing time because it doesn't matter whether Seth was Adam's son or grandson or great-grandson. He was born when Adam was 130 years old. So there's no way to put any time in there. Adam was created on the sixth day, a little over 6,000 years ago. In Searching for Adam, I wrote the chapter uh, giving the biblical arguments for that conclusion. And in, <coughs> excuse me, in the chapter on genetics, uh, there's actually strong genetics evidence in terms of the mutation rates in the human genome that confirms the biblical time scale and doesn't at all fit with the evolutionary time scale. Well, if we're all descended from Adam, then where did all the races come from? Well, the, the Bible answers that very clearly. But, you know, we, we talk today about, you know, the black race, the white race, the brown race, the red race, the yellow race. It's completely erroneous language. Look at those people. Would, you, would anyone please tell me which person is the black person? There is no black person in that picture. There's some people that are very dark brown people, but there's no black person in this room today. And look at their skin compared to their hair. They're not black. They're dark brown. And there are no white people in this room. I have a white t-shirt on. I am not white. I'm light brown. And we're all brown. We're just different shades of brown. If you find somebody that's white, call 911. They're in big trouble. The Bible tells us that there's only one race. God made from one man every nation of mankind to dwell on all the face of the earth. We have different people groups, different language groups, and when we add our modern understanding of genetics to the event of the Tower of Babel, it's very easy to explain where the different people groups come from that have distinctive physical characteristics that are literally only skin deep. Well... In 2000, the Human Genome Project finished mapping the human genome, and they made an announcement, a unanimous announcement. It's a scientific fact, they said. There's only one race, the human race. 
There is absolutely no scientific basis for talking about different races of people. So the scientists caught up with what the Bible had been teaching for three and a half thousand years. And if everybody in America understood what the Bible says about human origins, we wouldn't have a race problem. And you know, if we're going to hate somebody that looks different than us, we're going to have to hate every person in the world because nobody looks exactly like you. Even identical twins can see a difference between themselves. But the evolutionary view is inherently racist. Most evolutionists aren't personally racist, but the idea is inherently racist. And Charles Darwin was racist. He believed that the aborigines were the least evolved, that black Africans were more evolved, that mongoloids, Asians, were more evolved. Guess who he thought was the most evolved? White Anglo-Saxons, like himself. Stephen, ha- Stephen Jay Gould, the great Harvard evolutionist, said, Biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1850, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. And even the diagrams are inherently racist. Look at this one from Time Life Books. You go from a little ape to a man, the skin gets lighter, the last one's a Caucasian. Or this one from National Geographic. Or this one from Discovery Channel. These are inherently racist diagrams that fuel racist ideas. Well, what color were Adam and Eve? Well, if they were white, if they were Caucasian, we don't have time to go into the genetics, but there are a number of genes that control how much melanin is produced in our skin. If they were white, they'd only have white kids. If they were black like a dark African, they'd only have dark kids. So we believe that Adam and Eve were middle brown. And uh, they, would have in, then it w- they, they would then have had the genetic information to produce all that variety, and they could have produced it in one generation. As the Bible says, they had fi- or the Jewish tradition says they had 53 kids. So they could have had a whole kaleidoscope in one generation. And you say, well, that's not possible. Oh, yes, it is. Look at this family. The husband's from Germany. The wife, the mother is from Ghana. They had twins, and they aren't the same color. Well, no, they are the same color. It's just one has a little more color than the other. Or look at this couple. One baby, one twin is darker than the parents. The other twin is lighter than the parents. What's going on here? Well, both mom and dad have a black father and a white mother using those terrible labels, but... Well, those two girls have grown up, and they love each other. They're sisters. Are they black and white twins? No. They're dark brown and light brown twins. See, we've got to get our thinking changed. We've got to have a biblical understanding of the origin of man, and then we'll think right about people that have a little bit darker skin than us or a little bit lighter skin than us. We're all descended from Noah and his family who descended from Adam and Eve. So when we really look carefully at the, at the evidence, the evolutionary view doesn't fit the facts. They have to use imagination and art. What we see fits with what the Bible says. Well, so what? Does it really matter? Well, I don't have time to go through some illustrations, but it does matter. If Adam is in your ancestry, then you're made in the image of God You're a sinner in need of salvation, and Jesus died for you no matter how dark or how light your skin is and no matter what your language is, and you need the Savior. But if an ape is in your ancestry, then morality is relative. It's the law of the jungle. It's the survival of the fittest. And we've seen a lot of evidence of what that philosophy produces Hitler killed 10 to 15 million Jews. Stalin, 20 to 23 million Russians. Japanese uh, Emperor Hirohito, 6 million. Uh, Margaret Sanger, the African-American community should understand that Margaret Sanger was a radical racist, and she, the founder of Planned Parenthood, developed abortion clinics because she wanted to exterminate the Negro population. And most of their abortion clinics are in the poor communities, Hispanic and African-American communities. Pol Pot killed one to three million of the eight million Cambodians in Mao Zedong. 
49 to 78 million Chinese. And they did it because they were applying evolutionary philosophy to their political agenda. The atheists understand it. No Adam and Eve means no need for a savior. It also means no need for the Bi- that the, or means that the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of unambiguous literal truth. It is completely unreliable because it all begins with a myth and builds on that as a basis. No fall of man means no need for atonement and no need for redeemer. Adam is foundational to the gospel, but we have Christian leaders that are questioning, scholars that are questioning because of genetics. And the leading promoter of theistic evolution in the church today is Biologos, and they are penetrating seminaries. They have a booth every year at the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting, and they're, they're having an influence. But let me close with this statement by another leading evolutionist. There is a popular image of human evolution that you'll find all over the place. On the left of the picture, there's an ape. On the right, a man. Between the two is a succession of figures that become ever more like humans. Our progress from ape to human looks so smooth, so tidy. It's such a beguiling image that even the experts are loath to let it go. Why won't they let it go? Because it's very effective in brainwashing people. But this evolutionist says it is an illusion. That, folks, is an illusion. It's worse than an illusion. It's a deception because it leads people to think that they're just an animal descended from some other animal, that when they die, they'll be dead. And there's no life after death. There's no heaven and hell. It's all a deception because we're made in the image of God. We have a sin problem. We need a Savior because there is a heaven and a hell, and the only hope of going to heaven is if we've repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you haven't made that commitment, you haven't humbled yourself before God and admitted your sin to Him and put your trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I urge you to do so before you lay your head on your pillow tonight. Well, God bless you, and I'll turn it over to the conference organizers.